You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Those of you that are online, welcome. Hopefully you're comfortable and able to engage. And if there's a few here, maybe, who uh, perhaps wouldn't yet call yourselves followers of Jesus, you're welcome as well. We're very glad that you're here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I humble myself under your mighty hand. And I simply ask that you would speak through me to open hearts and minds. In Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to start by saying that I, I did find it quite difficult to sit on this message for one more week um, after Adam taught us last Sunday. He, he was exactly right when he stated that these two sections of the Sermon on the Mount go together. They really work together, and they create this launching ramp for what Jesus is taking us into next. Uh, so what I'd like to do is attempt to just make a few connections to what was, was given to us last week. Uh, first, I noticed during the message last week a quote from one of my favorite authors kept running through my mind. His name is G.K. Chesterton, and it's a simple quote, but it's profound. He says, moderate strength is shown in violence. Supreme strength is shown in levity. I don't have time to develop the thought path on that for you right now, but I invite you to think about it as you meditate on these verses we've been studying over the last five or six weeks. And for those who take notes, you might want to capture that and carry it through. It, it, it follows through all of the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount quite well. You can also look at 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, and you're going to notice this theme of light. Adam also mentioned soil. He, he, he talked about it in particular. He noted that the earth, the actual dirt, uh, is taking on some interesting characteristics at the Lenten time of year in the Lake Effect North. Well, it occurred to me last Sunday that there's another thing going on in the soil around here at this time of year as well. It's a phenomenon called frost heave. Some of you have probably heard of this. And it occurs due to some interesting and rather unique characteristics of liquid water, which the soil is full of. One of the things it does with great and gradual exertions of force is to push boulders and massive stones up out of the ground onto the surface where they can be removed or put to some other use. This is quite important to farmers and gardeners of 200 years ago as it kept them from breaking their implements on subsurface stones that they couldn't see. It makes me think of Ezekiel chapter 11. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will gradually and gently remove their heart of stone. I think that's in and of itself a very powerful symbol 
for what Jesus has been teaching his disciples since the beginning of chapter 5. And did you catch that middle section? God gives them hearts of flesh. Why? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. We've mentioned for weeks now that much of what Jesus is teaching here revolves around what kind of people we become. And I would propose to you that one of the main characteristics of a person who is not set to take an eye for an eye, who is not willing to retaliate violence for violence, is the characteristic of having a truly softened heart. And with that idea fresh in our minds, we'll look at the final contrast in this series of insightful teachings Jesus is describing for us what personal interactions look like for those who are becoming the kind of people God wants us to be. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Allow me to give you a couple of quick working definitions before we dig in here. Love. Here it is the word agape, and it refers to the kind of love the Heavenly Father has for his creation. It is a love that comes from him because of who he is, not from the object because of anything in particular about that. This love wills the good of another, and it is not reliant on feelings of any particular kind. Enemy. Here it is the word ekthros. This is a person who doesn't love you and actively wills your harm. This is the person who says to you some version of, I wish you were dead, or acts in some way to hurt you. The same word is also used as the verb to hate. We live in a world, increasingly in our time, where hating your enemy has become something of a virtue, because we live in an upside-down and twisted world. There are hundreds or perhaps thousands of people who've achieved fame and celebrity along with swollen bank accounts by exploiting this very thing. This should not come as much of a surprise to us who have some familiarity with Scripture because it's not new, and our Scripture today proves it. Look at the source of what Jesus says his listeners had heard, which is cited as Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. That says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's it. That's all it says. Now, I am not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I can't seem to find where it commands people to hate their enemies. I don't know. Maybe you can find some way to read that, to make it say that, but I can't read it to make it say that. But clearly the Pharisees did, somehow. It's not a big leap to think that if my kingdom 
my Pharisee kingdom, is built on a foundation of desire that is set only to please and to satisfy me, then it does me a great deal of service for the law of God to tell me to hate my enemies. I mean, think about it. It's what I feel like doing already. It's what I feel like doing. And if I can twist the law of God to support what I feel like doing, seems like I win. It looks, like, looks very much like the Pharisees had twisted and reinterpreted the law of God in order to make it align with their own feelings and desires. Desires, I might add, that we have all dealt with before. Now, these passages we've been working through for the last five or six weeks have a lot to do with us as humans, particularly as it relates to our capacity to desire and to the proper functioning of our will and how these two things, these two forces work together or don't work together. And I want to clarify that a bit for you. Desire is a natural and good part of human life as created by God. Will is also an essential part of the human being. I'm not talking about willpower as we commonly understand it. I'm not talking about cranking up enough force to to stuff down your emotions until you get to some better place where you can vent them. I'm talking about your will. The core part of you which makes you a bearer of God's image and which is intended to serve as the executive center of your life. In this context, it is synonymous with your heart or spirit, and it's a vital part of who you are for a number of reasons, one of which is that it relates to desire in a particular way. Your will in contrast to desire, is the part of you that contemplates alternatives. This becomes extremely important when we talk about enemies. Desire itself is not a bad thing. I want to make that clear. In fact, it's vital for survival. If a baby doesn't sense that it desires milk and cry the baby dies. Desire is good. But desire does not contemplate alternatives. It's more like a horse fitted with blinders. You know what these blinders are? It's like a horse fitted with blinders. Can only see what's directly ahead. Desire simply says, I want that. I want vengeance. I have to have this or I have to have that. And most often it creates conflicts in our lives as it pursues what it wants. In contrast, your will is that part of you that actually has the power to write desires off, to put them in their place, as it were, and to bring them under the control of what is good. This is directly related to what we're looking at in this passage about how we are to deal with enemies. I want to try to illustrate this quickly with a real story, and I have permission to share this. A few weeks ago, a young man I know was having some trouble with another student at school. There were pencils being lobbed at heads, and there were words, not good words, flying about between them. This became an intense and anger-filled situation, and it was not the first instance. 
Finally, after a somewhat violent verbal exchange, the young man was dismissed from the room and sent to the office. Later that evening, after finding out about the situation and learning all the details, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, take him grocery shopping and talk to him while you shop. Now, I don't know if you've all had this kind of experience, but when the Lord tells you to go grocery shopping, you better go grocery shopping. So what you do. So this is what we did. Remember what I said a minute ago about desire being more like a horse with blinders on and will empowering you to consider alternatives. I asked this young man a question while we were in the tortilla aisle, and I specified that he not answer me until we got to the cereal aisle. That's two aisles in between. Okay? I wanted to give him some time to think about his answer. I asked him, can you think of another way that you could have responded to this bully in your class? Can you think of another way? And on we went, him driving the cart and me looking for chicken bouillon, which I can never find. They move it every week, apparently. Some minutes later, having arrived at the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I asked him if he had thought of anything. I could tell he had really been working on this question for two whole aisles. And I was about to find out why. He could only reiterate to me that he had no other choice but to retaliate, to return anger for anger, attack for attack. He could not imagine an alternative. This is an image of desire when it is not ruled by a will which is learning to be obedient to God. I won't describe for you his reaction when I suggested that one alternative could have been to, to ignore the kid. <laughs> it's a simple, silly story, perhaps, but it's full of truth, and we've all been there. All right, let's now look at how Jesus responds to this idea of loving our neighbors but hating our enemies. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He then goes on to give examples of how this looks. You love those who love you, and you greet only your brothers. Today, we might say these same things slightly differently. For us, it might look like only listening to people who already agree with us. Or it may look like only reading books that reflect what we already think and believe. It can even happen by simply avoiding people that God puts in your life to challenge you. Please notice that this is not the same thing as disagreement or even disapproval. I've disapproved of some of the things my children have done, but that did not constitute hatred or abuse, and it did not make me their enemy. So we have to be careful with this, particularly now. For the Pharisees, rightness or goodness was wrapped up in treating well those whom they already approved of and who approved of them. And in the hardness of their hearts, they felt justified to hate those who weren't on that list. The law could be made to serve their desires for exclusion and hatred, which are the fruit of pride, poisonous fruit, as we'll see in a few minutes. Then along comes Jesus, and at this point, he's really, he's really tightening the screws on this legalistic brand of 
supposed righteousness. He's, he's really not taking any prisoners here. <laughs> In contrast to the Pharisees, Jesus says, But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he immediately follows it up with the why. So that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He's not reciting a poem. He's not just being cute. He's making a direct statement about these things and how they connect to each other. It's not an inconsequential point, and it's not hyperbole. So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. There's a direct correlation here. Later this week, when you open your Bible to study, check out 1 John chapter 3. There are lots of others. That's just one that I give you. Did you notice that Jesus does not say, so that your enemies will not feel bad about themselves? He does not say, so your enemies will become your friends. He does not even say, so that your enemies will come to love God. He doesn't mention them after the first time at all. It appears that Jesus is not encouraging us to be concerned about outcomes except in our own inner lives. He seems to be far more interested in our response to an enemy's hatred and abuse of us than in that enemy himself. This is another essential element to being fully human. I am responsible for how I respond to an enemy. All right, one more thought about love. Remembering the definition I gave you just a, a few moments ago, you can see Jesus here is describing an action. He tells us to love our enemies, enemies and he illustrates that action by teaching that we're to pray for them. He doesn't demand that we have warm, fuzzy feelings for them because this love is not a feeling. It's an act of our will. He doesn't tell us to pretend to be their friend and hang out with them. This may often be unsafe or impossible. And Jesus isn't stupid. But he does instruct his disciples to act. And to act in a particular way. He instructs us who say we follow him to pray for those who persecute us. This action, if done in humble obedience, serves not only to bless those who act as our enemies, but it also works in the soil of my own heart, forcing up hard stones, boulders that are there that hinder the, the growth of good fruit in my life. One of the most loving things you can do for anyone, particularly an enemy, is to pray for them. That third word in that little phrase seems exceptionally important to me, to our understanding, so that you. I propose to you that this teaching is about how we are to respond to our enemies, or which is about how we are to respond to our enemies, has far more to do with you and me than it does with them, whoever them is. I think Jesus, as the creator of all things, who was in the beginning with God, wants to protect us, his children, from the toxic and corrosive effects of hatred and anger, even anger against those who rightly deserve it. A 12-year-old young lady brought this poem by 18th century artist and writer William Blake to my attention, and I wonder if it will help us see what I'm talking about. It's entitled, A Poison Tree. 
I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears. And I sunned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole when the night had veiled the pole. And in the morning, glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. Glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree? Dead? How did I become that kind of person? But I say, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. It starts to be a little easier to see why Jesus was killed. Perhaps when an enemy attacks us and we are not able to tell our wrath as we can with a friend, it is to prayer that we must go. In prayer for them, we can release unto God that poison which seeks to build up in us so we do not become a poisoned tree bearing deadly fruit. As I was preparing this message, I sought some counsel on this topic from Kathy Parker and Shelley Walaka, who both have training and experience in trauma care and healing. I know Susan Titus does as well, and I, I think it seems almost impossible to me to look at this particular teaching and not consider this aspect of the issue. So I want to say, as gently as I can, that when we are wounded, it is God's great desire to see us healed, restored, and whole again. When Jesus died on the cross, hung there with him were the sins of those who have harmed us, as well as our sins against others. Suffering and grief, sharing and lamentation, these are special practices whereby we take our wounds and our pain to the cross of Christ where it was all covered by his sacrifice. There, we must let it go. He will take it, but we must release it so that we can move into forgiveness, restoration, and resilience. As Jesus clearly says, the goal of all of this, this is teaching for his disciples, remember. The goal is perfection. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perhaps one of the craziest things anybody could ever say. <laughs> he said it. It would seem that in terms of righteousness, as it is counted and cultivated in the kingdom of God, it really is all about what kind of people you and I are becoming. Now, I'm so convinced that this is what Jesus actually means that I'm willing to say the road to perfection begins when you decide to become a student of Jesus, a disciple. It's a long road, 
You may not make it to the end before this life is over. In fact, I would say don't count on it. But as people whose desires become more and more subservient under our will, and our will becomes more and more devoted to loving our Heavenly Father by obeying Him, our entire life will be transformed. Remember, love is not a feeling, and we do not prove that we love God by having particular kinds of feelings toward him. Half the Psalms are somebody yelling at God for not doing something, right? We prove that we love him by the action of obeying him. We are designed to love God through our will, not merely through our fickle emotions. John 14, 15 states this quite clearly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This does not happen overnight. It does not happen at a weekend retreat or at a special conference. Those things can be very good and they should be pursued. But what I think Jesus is talking about here takes your whole life and your whole lifetime. The command is not to step under the magic wand and be transformed. The invitation from Jesus is come to me with all your failures, all your traumas, all your mistakes, and all your successes and your goodness too, and give it all to me so I can make you into the person I want you to be. Walk with me every day, and as life comes at you, I will teach you how to live from my strength, from my goodness, and from my kingdom instead of yours. Loving our enemies does not guarantee they will cease to be our enemies. Loving our enemies does not guarantee that our life will be easy and peaceful. Loving our enemies does not mean that we go along with everything either. Loving our enemies does not mean we always remain silent, and it does not mean that we will feel loving feelings toward people who hate us. That's not the command. Jesus told his disciples to expect hatred, persecution, and suffering on account of him. The world hated him then, still hates him now. And if you trust him enough to obey him, the world's going to hate you too. Go back and carefully reread verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. This is pretty plain, I think. When we come to a place of complete assurance and confidence in our Heavenly Father and in his watchful provision over our lives, such that we no longer carry the need to defend or justify ourselves, then we will begin to be in a position to love our enemies. What does it mean to love your enemy? It means you live in and from an entirely different kingdom, one in which you truly stand with God. And in that position, you genuinely have nothing to fear. And you can see that enemy as they actually are. Lastly, I want to encourage you, if you're adventurous, to go back and reflect on the last six weeks as we've worked through these staggering teachings. I believe they're all on the website, maybe, if, if you're really aggressive and you want to go listen to them all this week. That's great. It's not a rule. You don't have to. It's an invitation. We've looked at Jesus' teaching on the righteousness of the kingdom heart when tempted into anger or to lust. We've looked at his teaching on righteousness in the face of divorce and verbal manipulation. 
We've heard him teach about vengeance and now about enemies. In all of these things, there is an intense calling into the kingdom of God through discipleship to Jesus, such that we can truly become new kinds of people. Dallas Willard ended a lecture that he was giving on these verses with these words. And I just want you to try to hang on to this. Jesus is not giving laws. He's teaching us what the person who is at home in the kingdom of God will characteristically do when the occasion arises. These are expressions of how people who are alive in the kingdom of God characteristically behave, not because they're trying to get something, but because they already have it. Then, out of the abundance of what they have, they act. They do not act out of scarcity or fear or weakness. They act out of strength, out of fullness, out of confidence. And by doing that, they enter into a power that is so great that we can speak of the kingdom advancing among human beings. Another thought, I didn't write this. I'm going to go off the page here a second. Another thought that I had going through my head last week when Adam was talking was just this question, where do you live? Where do you live? Where do you live? It just kept going over and over. Where do you live? Where do you have to live to be the kind of person who, who isn't just set to go venge mode? Where do you have to live? I think it's a really important question. Where do you live from? All right, back to the page. Can you imagine being so filled to overflowing with the knowledge of God's goodness and grace toward you that you wouldn't mind if other people thought little of you or not even at all? Can you imagine being so in love with Jesus and so loyal to him that you would obey his commands simply out of the joy of being pleasing to him? Can you imagine being so utterly secure in his authority in the authority that Jesus has over the entire cosmos that you fear nothing? Can you imagine being so enthralled with the goodness and the wonder of our Heavenly Father toward you that not even hatred or the threat of death could make you take your eyes off of him or to stop trusting in and obeying him? Can you imagine becoming the kind of person Jesus describes who actually loves his enemies and wills good for them? Hopefully, the answer for most of us is yes, we can't imagine that. If not, then I suggest you have found the exact spot where you should begin. Go start imagining. Go discover how much God loves you. Go start imagining what it will be like as he changes your heart. Go contemplate some alternatives. Go start imagining what it means to your life that he holds all, all the authority in heaven and on earth. Go start imagining what it will be like as he transforms you from the inside out. And these passages become reality in our lives. As I finish and the band returns and we prepare to enjoy a fellowship meal together, I want to encourage you to examine your understanding and practice of love. Jesus taught his disciples that they were to love their neighbors and their enemies. This word, 
love, perhaps more than any other word in the English language, has been stretched and abused beyond recognition. I've used it in this message 38 times, which is more than Jesus uses it in the first three Gospels combined. He used it 24 times. It is a word we often throw about or attach like a sticker to things without thinking about whether or not it actually applies. But it was love, real love, that drove Jesus to the cross. Love for his heavenly Father. It was love that kept him there until all was finished. Love for his disciples, me and you. And it was love that he offered even to his murderers. Love for his enemies that motivated him to pray for them and to ask for their forgiveness. Even bleeding to death on the cross, he loved his enemies and he prayed for them. There is nowhere in history a greater example of a soft heart of flesh than that. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.